Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today are uh, two good friends, Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts uh, on the Russian military as well as unmanned systems. He is also affiliated with, he is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security as well as the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And speaking of CSIS, joining us is also uh, Dr. Tom. Tom Carrico of CSIS, where he heads the Missile Defense Project. And of course, as everybody knows, uh, Tom is one of the world's leading experts on uh, air and missile defenses, as well as long-range strike. Gentlemen, thanks so very much for joining us, and a very happy new year to you both. Hey, great to be back on the Defense and Aerospace Report. Very happy to be back. Uh, indeed, guys. Uh, welcome back, Tom. It was uh, lovely seeing you up in New York at the Bank of America conference, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the takeaways uh, from there. And before we get started, this program is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Um, Sam, uh, let's uh, start off uh, with you. You were kind enough to join us virtually every single week. Tom, you join us on roughly a, a, a monthly uh, basis. Uh, and Sam, um, you know, bring us up to speed on uh, the Ukraine war. Um, you know, after October 7, a lot of the focus has been uh, on uh, Israel and its war on Hamas uh, in Gaza, and Ukraine has sort of slid off uh, the page. Uh, we've been hearing from Ukrainian officials that actually the pace of operations that the Russians, uh, you know, the nature of the attacks on uh, Ukrainian uh, air attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure have continued apace. Uh, and, and Ukraine is still trying to conduct uh, its offensive operations, even if uh, the situation on the front has stalemated. How has the nature of Russia's war on Ukraine been changing? Because, you know, even though the Ukrainians have been getting some shots in, including, uh, uh, you know, strikes on, uh, on, on Russian naval uh, assets in the Black Sea, the Russians are still barraging the country on a very regular basis and a wide scale basis. Talk to us a little bit about the Russian offensive operations, and I'll follow up in a second about how the Ukrainians have been punching back. Well, the Russians are uh, intent on uh, making Ukraine pay for the past two years. They are throwing a lot of soldiers, a lot of weapons, a lot of systems, especially land systems at the Ukrainians. They have sustained significant losses. Russians claim that they are slowly but surely capturing Clawing basically away uh, square kilometers of Ukrainian territory at a very high cost, but for them, it's um, it's the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is they're still in the fight, and they're capable of uh, pressing Ukrainian forces uh, over over the new year. Basically, right before, right after New Year, both sides have traded long-range drone strikes. There's been some damage, but overall, it hasn't changed the pace of operations and hasn't changed anybody's resolve. One significant change from Russia's sustained uh, drone strikes against Ukraine is the now confirmed use of a jet-powered Shahed-238. That's the drone that Iran has fielded quite recently. And now we're seeing it in action against Ukrainians in the Russian service. So this is a change from the previous turboprop uh, Shahed's that have been flying for two years. It is probably a more dangerous weapon, probably not as long range, but one that flies much faster and is probably more difficult for the Ukrainian defenses to interdict. And so we're going to expect more drone strikes against Ukraine this year. 
by different Shahed versions in order to overwhelm Ukrainians' already stressed air defenses. Uh, and um, talk to me a little bit, and Tom, I'm going to come to you in, in just a second. Uh, the Ukrainians also have done some pretty significant strikes on Russian uh, infrastructure, including sinking another important or, or badly damaging, depending on how you want to look at it, another Russian naval asset. Walk, to a, walk us through some of the capabilities the Ukrainians are using uh, to counterstrike uh, into Russian territory. The Ukrainians are also using missiles. The Ukrainians are using long-range drones. Uh, Ukrainians are very judicious in the targets that they select. The sinking of a Russian ship in port, which was probably loaded with some kind of weapons or, or systems or munitions, and quite even possibly with Shahed drones from Iran, was a very significant message. Uh, the Ukrainians are demonstrating time and time again that they're capable of striking Russian assets, which are supposed to be well defended by Russian air defenses and electronic warfare defenses. So Ukrainians are demonstrating that Russian defenses are not absolute. There are weaknesses and gaps that could be exploited. But the issue here is scale. Ukrainians are capable of striking uh, Russian assets, which are supposed to be well defended by Russian air defenses and electronic warfare defenses. Um, but at the same time, the, these are singular successes. They so far cannot be replicated on a very large scale to really put a lot of pressure on Russian assets at sea, in the air, and obviously on land, and especially in Russia proper. Uh, Tom, um, give us your sense, right? I mean, uh, I think Sam framed it for us, but as somebody who's also expert at long-range strike, how are you seeing the nature of the back and forth between these two sides uh, changing? And what does that tell us about what to expect uh, over the coming year as this conflict sort of morphs? Yeah, no, I think Sam framed it well. I think that the uh, sinking of that Russian ship was an important uh, an important success on the part of Ukraine. And then what did you see? You saw a very significant Russian response. The word re uh, retaliation uh, hits the headlines, which is a little bit interesting or ironic, uh, given the, uh, the fundamentally defensive uh, operation on the part of the Ukrainians, but that's what the, the word was out there. But, you know, look, the, the Russians did respond in mass with over 100 uh, you know, uh, missile and, 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 and drone strikes uh, in, a, in, a, in a fairly significant salvo. And that, I would say, is the, the key that answers the question that you and, and, and Sam kind of posed, uh, which is how is this changing? And it's becoming, uh, you know, the ugly question of attrition. And so right. uh, Sam flagged the, the jet powered Shahid, that's important. But I would also flag the, uh, the Russian acquisition of the North Korean uh, short or perhaps medium range ballistic missiles, which have now been, the White House has confirmed, been fired into Ukraine. And, and also the uh, confirmation that Russia is planning to acquire ballistic missiles from Iran. So it's about going and getting uh, lots and lots of stuff from these, let's call them arsenals of autocracy. Uh, to give the Russians lots and lots, and and as Sam correctly you know noted, or somebody correctly noted, this Russian air defenses aren't perfect, and that's where where mass comes in. And on on the Ukrainian side, you know it's both they're running out of uh, interceptors potentially, and that by the way is where the Japanese, you know, uh, historical uh, move to begin to uh, export. Uh, some of the patriots that they've been producing for the past 20 some years is is coming in. But I would also say that the uh, I predict that we will very soon hear about the ground launch small diameter bomb. Uh, 
uh, coming into the story, and that's going to be part of filling the gap uh, in terms of capacity. And and, and let me uh, ask you uh, a little bit about how the Ukrainians are sort of changing the game, uh, right? Uh, when we were at uh, Bank of America, we heard from uh, a senior uh, Ukrainian official, uh, his comments were on uh, background. But, you know, he was noting that, look, we're trying to, uh, you know, he, he said that in one time that they made uh, of 10 of the important ballistic missiles coming in, uh, Patriots intercepted all 10 of them, uh, which was uh, a pretty big step. But he also went out of his way to say, look, we're not shooting all of these slower stuff down. There are 2000 pickup trucks with small caliber weapons on them uh, or, or, or heavy machine guns, if you will that are used to shoot down a lot of these uh, drones, many of them that aren't going to hit anything are allowed to uh, go through. And this is a little bit reminiscent to how we're stacking our own uh, defenses uh, against Houthi uh, unmanned uh, aircraft and ballistic missiles. We're saving generally the standards, uh, the, the uh, missiles to take out the ballistic missiles, but we're using five inch 54 gunfire to down uh, some of these other capabilities. How, how are the Ukrainians layering and uh, uh, using their available assets, as you said, I mean, the Japanese contribution is incredible and often under uh, underreported. How are the Ukrainians flexing and shaping their air and missile defenses? Because the Russians have got a lot of stuff to shoot. And the whole thing that the Russians are trying to do is just really drive, you know, empty our barrel uh, and and leave the Ukrainians vulnerable. Yeah, look, uh, I, again, I commend and I, I... I think everybody ought to be acknowledged the historical uh, movement that the Japanese have made. And admittedly, it's probably some, I think the number is dozens that the uh, was reported in terms of the Japanese export. But that's a big deal. But you got to also connect that with the news this past uh, week or so about Germany getting to into the Patriot uh, co-production business with MBDA. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that and the purchase of thousands uh, of Patriot's of different stripes within the Patriot family uh, is part of the the story here. But back to Ukraine uh, specifically, look, it's imperfect. Uh, Flak uh, uh, is going to have a a role to play in the 21st century, just as it did in the 20th, uh, to your uh, your uh, gun-based comment there. Uh, And you're right, Vago, that's got to be part of the calculus for uh, all all kinds of U.S. uh, uh, air defense efforts by the Army and others to include your reference to the uh, the Kearney and other ships in the Red Sea. And so, uh, admittedly, it's it's shorter range stuff. It's not just what you're shooting at, but the range uh, of when it comes into view. Those standards also have a, a longer uh, a longer range than the uh, the CRAM uh, phalanx kind of stuff. So uh, it, it's it's absolutely part of the calculus. Uh, it's a mix of uh, of different effectors for capacity uh, and for a, a, a fundamentally a layered defense. But I think we have to be candid. It's not perfect. It's kind of ugly and messy, uh, and that's why at this point it's it's as I think I said before an ugly attrition kind of a kind of a fight. Right. Um, uh, uh, Sam, what are you know? There is uh, has been a focus, unfortunately, on the sort of uh, stalemated uh, nature, not just of uh, the front lines. Uh, but also of, uh, unfortunately, the aid uh, that, um, you know, folks had certainly hoped the Ukrainians would be getting. Uh, and that's been delayed both by the United States, although we did hear uh, that, you know, it should be in the second quarter uh, that uh, that $65, 68000000000 billion in aid will be cleared. Europe is trying to work to get $20 billion, 20 billion euros in immediate aid as part of a $50 billion package. 
Um, what are the capabilities that the Ukrainians most need now? And are they going to be able to defend themselves until this aid, more of this aid arrives? Or, or is Tom right? Is it aid from a whole bunch of other powers like Japan and others that are that will hold the, the Ukrainians over until more American and European aid uh, arrive? Well, based on the conversations coming out of Ukraine, based on the official statements, and especially coming from the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, the real priority are counter UAV systems, air defense systems, and electronic warfare systems. And Ukrainian defense industry, its volunteer community have been quite ingenious and very adaptive in mitigating the Russian threat, but obviously uh, they can't do it alone. So if there are delays with some um, American aid, then obviously technology from Europe and uh, some of our Asian allies like South Korea can actually mitigate some of those concerns, but not all of them, obviously, especially if Russia will continue to launch large numbers of missiles and Shahed-like drones at the Ukrainians, especially the jet-powered ones. Uh, so again, Ukraine has been very adaptable. It was able to use its resources very wisely. But uh, the threat is increasing in scale, and it's not exactly clear what the next several months will hold. Uh, and what are the Russian casualties, right? I mean, we've been hearing uh, more talk about the Ukrainian uh, casualties and some of the uh, frustrations uh, with uh, sort of the amount of time people, unfortunately, are spending on the front lines. Ukraine is, you know, it's a third the size of Russia. If we are to believe the casualty rates that we're hearing, and I think British intelligence has been pretty accurate about this, the Russians, I mean, what, what are the nature of the casualties the Russians are sustaining? And how much longer can the Russians sustain this, right? That ultimately, given, you know, the, the mothers, um, right, which are seen as a very powerful force, or is this something actually the Russians would be able to bear indefinitely at, at this rate, uh, given that they're you know, they think that they're eventually going to win this. You know, these are very important questions. And we've been asking that question for the past two years as the Russian casualties mounted, as we view on a daily basis, multiple videos of uh, Russians getting cooked off in tanks and armored cars. And I think some of these questions we're asking as part of the overall Western world, because in the West, right, uh, and amongst our allies around the world, if uh, a military action sustains too many casualties, there's going to be pressure from society, pressure from legislation, uh, all kinds of other pressures that will combine on the ultimate sort of pressure on the military to um, to pivot away from the conflict, to stop the conflict, to, you know, to mitigate it in one form or another. Uh, it does not appear that the Russian government is facing the same type of pressure. Surely soldiers' mothers are a powerful force, but uh, this is not an official war right now for Russia. Remember, it's still a special military operation two years in. There's no national mobilization, although there is a mobilization of the economy, right? They're not talking about a wider war. They're talking about a limited type of war. Uh, Russians have used uh, prisoners. They've used minorities. They've used... Um, uh, a lot of uh, migrants from Central Asia, for example, to fill the ranks. And uh, the overall number of casualties, right? It's rather staggering. Something north of 300,000 killed. Wow. And probably uh, at least as many probably injured 
Uh, although, again, the real numbers are very hard to come by. The Russian government isn't necessarily publishing these numbers. It's not really discussing these numbers. The Ministry of Defense is not talking about it in any official capacity. So any numbers that we're talking about or any concerns about data is really coming from the Western commentators, as well as from some of the more freewheeling uh, social media channels like um, those on Telegram. Right. This is not a concern for the Russian government at the moment. There is no pressure on the Kremlin, on Putin, to mitigate this conflict, to sit down at the negotiating table. He is planning to fight this year, uh, well into the next year, right? And the pace of the war right now suits him. It suits the Ministry of Defense because they think they can simply wait out Ukrainian resolve as well as Western assistance. But again, a lot of the questions we're asking are really the questions that a Western commentator would ask, right? A lot of Russians have stopped asking those questions, don't want to ask those questions, and those who are talking about it are probably already overseas, and even uh, the uh, the pace of that conversation has, uh, has been somewhat muted as well. So again, it appears for the moment that the Russian government and the military can continue the current pace, and they can continue sustaining casualties as long as the bigger picture is shown to the Russian society. That is, the Russians are taking back some of the uh, population centers and positions they lost to the Ukrainians. They're showing limited, but victories nonetheless, quote unquote, and they can continue rolling westward towards Kiev. Uh, Tom, uh, your your sense on this, and I want to uh, turn to you in a minute and ask you about uh, Replicator and some other takeaways that we, we heard from uh, yeah. the conference, but your your sense on sort of the casualties, yeah, and well, how I, that changes the calculus. Do you I, think I, I would I would I would agree with Sam, and I would say simply put that that we're we're probably making a mistake by looking at the Russian street because the proverbial Russian street is responsive to the Russian windows above it, uh, which is to say what Putin communicates by those who are falling out of the said windows. Uh, it's just not the same calculus as we think about uh, for ourselves or for our friends. Um, let me uh, take you to takeaways uh, from uh, the conference. I think it was your question uh, to uh, Secretary Kendall that uh, maybe moved the replicator needle, as everybody knows. Uh, Dr. Hicks, the Deputy Defense Secretary, uh, you know, called for this new program uh, of bringing in non-traditional suppliers to build vast quantities of uh, attritable or expendable uh, unmanned systems uh, that could be that would be more affordable, uh, and uh, you know there's been a lot of debate on what this looks like. You know, is it serious? And we got a sense that it's serious. What uh, what did uh, you hear uh, just more broadly in the conference that you thought was interesting, but also specifically Secretary Kendall's uh, comment that hey, we've got a competitor in this, and what it tells us uh, about what Replicator is and isn't maybe. Yeah. So first of all, great to see you, Vago, and JJ, and Ron Epstein, and so many other folks at the at the B of A uh, conference. You know, on on Replicator, I, I would say two things. One, you know, Kendall acknowledged that this is uh, the Dep Deputy Secretary's uh, initiative. He also acknowledged a couple other things, uh, including that there's still some decisions to be made, uh, including on the you know down selects and that kind of stuff in terms of who's going to be doing it. I, I would say that there have been some concerns, some some skepticism expressed by industry uh, and the like in terms of uh, show me the money. You know, where is the where are the funds to make this a program and not just a 
aspiration. Uh, and so perhaps it's startups, perhaps it's uh, some established companies that have a slightly different uh, production initiative and a good enough initiative to uh, to focus on expendability and attributability. So I think it's, it's a little early to be seen about who's going to be the winners that may or may not be uh, announced in the coming weeks. The Pentagon's kind of said a couple of different things about that. But I would say that the replicator initiative uh, in principle is very commendable. It's exactly the kind of thing that we should be, be thinking about. Uh, but it precisely because of its commendability, we also need to see the resources behind it. And that's why I think you've seen those comments uh, given an industry. Fundamentally, industry will respond to, to the demand signal that DOD uh, expresses. But it's that demand signal has to be made upstream for us to have the results we want. And we uh, understand that the Navy uh, has three uh, contestants in this. Obviously, uh, we know now the Air Force has one. Uh, any sense on what the Army has pitched in this, uh, given uh, that uh, you've got some very good sources in the Army? Uh, you know, look, I think that there's, uh, in terms of uh, winners and losers, I think I won't speculate, but I'll just say that I think that the Army has uh, launched a number of, especially on the smaller side, very tactical uh, initiatives here uh, to have the uh, the infantry uh, and other uh, branches supplied and not be be reliant upon anybody else. And I will say one other thing: there was an article today uh, that DoD put out, or maybe it was the Army that put out, in terms of the an Army's new initiative on space. Uh, and I say this because I think this is be, uh, representative of both the need for capacity and tactical information and tactical capability. And so I would uh, suggest your your listeners watch that space uh, in terms of uh, the Army and other folks' uh, interests in, in tactical space. And uh, very quickly, do you have any sense how much money is going to be parked in Replicator, right? I mean, industry is always looking for a sign. And we regularly tell industry, hey, you guys got to, you know, I want this. I want you to do this. And then actually the resources don't materialize, right? So it can be a priority by the deputy secretary, your former boss, by the way. Um, but, you know, I mean, so how much bread is in this bread box? Is this going to be hundreds of millions of dollars? Is it billions of dollars? How? What, what indication do you have on what's going to be in the 25 budget? Well, look, uh, that's now we've got a budget deal and it clears the way for at least some budget to come out around March. Well, well yeah, that's 20. That's for 24, of course. <laughs> the, the the budget deal for 25 will come out and, 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 and that's cooking Correct. on a different different burner. Correct. But um, so, look, I think that depends upon what, quote unquote, project replicator or the replicator initiative is. Uh, as originally announced, it was said, hey, there's not new money. And that is what I was referring to earlier in terms right. of the concern and the expressions of skepticism. Uh, but on the other hand, if it is about an approach, if it is about loosening acquisition authorities, if it is about changing the requirements to be good enough, and to, you know, instead of uh, building something that will be on the shelf for 20 years, like a stinger, to build a stinger or a drone or something that you know will be expended uh, or you're planning to be expended in a much sooner time, then what that really is, is a change of acquisition philosophy. And so I think it's we're still waiting to, to get more insight into that. And I would say that the, the quote unquote replicator initiative, uh, therefore, could be applied to other things other than just drones. It can be applied to a lot of other things. Um, and you and Brian Clark actually mirrored this 
that we need to take a fundamentally different approach in how we're engineering these weapons uh, for the future. And, and Sam, I'm going to come back to you to end it in a, in a moment as we're running low on time. How is it, what, what's the approach, Tom? Uh, I know you've repeated this so many times, right? Brian did. The, the South Koreans build these weapons not necessarily to be able to survive on a shelf for 20 years, although there are some who will make the case, hey, look, because we over-engineer them, Hawk missiles can be pulled out and used 30 years after they were delivered. Okay, got that. On the other hand, they're more expendable. What's what's the approach we need, the guiding approach, as we go to this sort of generational replenishment of our stocks and and presumably a, a less exquisite approach to how we're building some of this stuff. In general. Well, well, I guess I would I would recur, uh, recur Vago to the thing I said at the Bank of America conference on that panel I was on, which is to say, uh, we we don't necessarily need uh, just the fancy bright shiny objects, but we just need lots and lots of quantity. And this is nothing new, as you just said. Lots of people are saying this, but what I said is everybody's saying it. The prescription has been made. Uh, the diagnosis has been made, the prescription has been made, and now comes the time to take our medicine and get on the cure to, to, to health. We, we, have, we have the diagnosis, we have the prescription, intellectually everybody's on board. Now we have to change our practices. And that's that's where we're at, uh, what I would say is everybody's been saying for years what we need to do, and now we need to do it. Uh, Sam, any any last thoughts on all of this, uh, and and maybe uh, to to a little bit your point, what it is we could be learning from the Ukrainians? But I'll let you take it in any direction you want to go. Well, so speaking of replicator, uh, both Russia and Ukraine are pledging absolutely staggering number of drones that are going to be built and fielded this year, late in 2023, just about a week and a half ago or so. A Ukrainian government announced that they're going to manufacture one million FPV drones. 10,000 mid-range drones and 1,000 long-range drones to go after different military and industrial assets in the occupied territories as well as in Russia proper. And of course, on the Russian side, um, you and I have been talking about um, FPV and quadcopter and other drone used by the Russians. And outside of the uh, relatively uh, small numbers of Shahed slash Geran drones, which are now attacking Ukraine, uh, we're talking first thousands a month, then tens of thousands a month, and now quite possibly hundreds of thousands of FPV-type drones used a month against the Ukrainian by the Russian forces. Most of these are put together by different types of volunteer efforts with different level of government and industry support and uh, financial backing inside Russia proper. So this year, we can see actually absolutely massive quantities, uh, unprecedented really, drone usage in Ukraine at the tactical and operational levels, and of course, corresponding counter UAV and electronic warfare defenses, which have to evolve literally on a daily and weekly basis. So speaking of OODA loop and speaking of um, the test and evaluation timelines, everything is compressed literally into hours and days um, by the Russians and the Ukrainians. So uh, it's, it's difficult to envision what that would look like. Uh, you and I, uh, were talking about the evolution of drone use in Ukraine in relatively small and controlled numbers in the beginning, especially when right, it came right. to quadcopter uses. And then some of the longer uh, longer range drones used by Ukraine against Moscow, for example, You know, we're talking about attacks by the dozens, even the current attacks by Russians uh, against Ukrainians, the, the Geraint drones are flying in the dozens still. 
right? We're not yet talking about thousands. So what would the battlefield look like with tens of thousands more FPV and quadcopter drones in operation by both sides? I think that's very difficult to envision. What would data collection look like from all of these aerial sensors, right? What would the command and control in the organization look like? And both sides, by the way, are working at integrating these type of drones and their uh, concepts, right? How to use them as well as the... Um, as, as well as trying to develop the concept of integrating these drones with these numbers into the current tactical situation. So I think United States definitely has a lot to learn from this conflict still, especially as both Russia and Ukraine are racing to put as many drones and corresponding technologies into the field as possible. Uh, let me ask you uh, one last uh, question. We've only got about uh, less than a minute left. Uh, talk to us about Altel, right? Everybody knows uh, the Chinese firm Digi. Uh, they don't know Altel, but Altel is the world's second uh, largest drone maker after DJI. Uh, uh, talk to us about this, <laughs> the problem they got themselves into uh, because of some maybe very accurate advertising they were trying to do. Well, so Altel is one of the main quadcopters, commercial quadcopters that could be purchased for this war, is purchased for this war, is used by the Russians and Ukrainians for uh, combat operations, especially for training, you can always tell an hotel drone because it has a very distinct red coloring, um, as opposed to DJI, which is usually black or dark gray. And so recently, uh, one hotel outfit ran an ad, I think, in an online um, marketplace showcasing a heavy hotel quadcopter that can drop uh, military-grade munitions. And you can see those munitions in the in that rendering. Um and Autel previously said that they are not officially selling these drones for combat. They don't want their drones to be sold in combat. But of course, these statements are wink, wink with a nod. But, you know, obviously, since you can buy any DJI or Autel drone in any physical and online marketplace and put it in the field, and that's what the Russians and Ukrainians are doing. But officially, Autel isn't manufacturing military-grade drones. So when that ad went out, obviously, it was noticed because it went out on social media. And there was a lot of controversy because people publicly asked, so is Autel actually manufacturing military-grade drones or is their statement about not getting involved in the war just a bunch of hot air? And the company had to retract. Uh, the company removed the ad. It is likely that uh, there are multiple Autel outfits um, that don't know what they're doing uh, or, you know, at the same time. Uh, in August of last year, Autel hosted uh, one of the Russian volunteer groups, the two sisters from Donbass, Katya and Valya, for an actual visit to one of the Autel head headquarters in China, which again was publicly criticized. It is uh, likely that this was a local decision, not a, a decision made at the highest levels. So it's not exactly clear who approved an Autel ad showcasing a heavy military quadcopter. But the fact remains that a lot of these drones, especially those made by DJI, for agriculture purposes are in fact used by Ukrainians and Russians with great success, especially nine-time operations. So it's not unusual that somebody would actually use this Autel drone for military-grade purposes. It's just that Autel officially said they're not building them for the military, and apparently they don't know how that ad got published. Guys, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Terrific conversation uh, as uh, usual, and look forward to having you both on again uh, soon. Thanks so very much. Thanks, Vago. Thanks, Vago.